To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. and welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a reporter on the Cross Asset team. And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor on the markets team. This week on the show, the bond market is toying with the stock market. A rotation swept equities this week as yields moved higher, turning recent winners to losers and losers to winners. And trade and Brexit continue to dominate headlines. We get the take of an investor who is also a New York Times bestseller. And as always, we'll close out the episode with our tradition, the craziest thing I saw in markets this week. And Sarah, as you mentioned, uh, one of our guests is a New York Times bestselling author. He's written actually 11 books. I'm assuming you read all 11 in preparation. Oh, yeah. I read them within the past week. Really, (laughs) really drilled down. I had to cram at night. (laughs) (laughs) But he's far from just an author. He's the executive chairman and founder of Fisher Investments. Um, And he's... Uh, really one of the, I think, one of the most well-respected authors, uh, investors, uh, investment company founders around. His name's Ken Fisher. Ken, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Yeah. And Ken, I've read a lot of your writing. I got to say, if this whole billionaire investor thing falls through, I, I think we could get you a job as a stock market reporter <laughs> on, on at Bloomberg. If it, you know, if I you, may need that. If You'd you need be interested? <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, I'm always worried about the future. <laughs> That's right. And don't get nervous, but if you do take that job, the, your boss will be our other guest, uh, Chris Nagy, the executive editor of the Stocks team here at Bloomberg. Yes, I, I would uh, be bearing down on your copy as I do and everyone else at this table. <laughs> Maybe we can get Ken started on like the Benelux equity uh, preview. I, I, I don't right. think that'll work because my copy's unbearable. <laughs> <laughs> he can fix anything. <laughs> But before we get started, I just want to remind you that we do have our very own Bloomberg podcast hotline. If you have any questions, you have your own crazy things that you may want to hear said on the show, you can give us a call, leave us a message. That number is 646-324-3490. And if you're lucky enough, we may even play your message on the show. How lucky you would be. Imagine (laughs) imagine the fame that would follow that. Oh, yeah. But, Ken, I wanted to start with a really interesting column you had recently in USA Today. Uh, The headline was, uh, Watch Out Investors, Statistics Can Lie. Um, And one of the things uh, you talk about, um, a lot of this comes from a book, Daryl Huff's 1954 classic, How to Lie with Statistics. And one thing you say is, beware of stats from surveys. And I just wanted to uh, read off a quote from the book that you quote in the column. No conclusion that 67% of the American people are against something should be read without the lingering question, 67% of which American people. And I find this to be a a real fascinating topic at the moment because uh, much of the market has been focused on the ISM surveys of purchasing managers. Um, And I'm curious, you know, how do you uh, sort of go through the surveys and decide which one is worth paying attention to and which one is... uh, 
you can sort of ignore. I mean, the, the PMIs clearly uh, are something that move markets that a lot of people look at. Would they be an example of, of a good one to follow? Yes, because if you look at different PMIs on the same topic, they don't show the same thing always. And secondarily, the whole trend is aimed to be sort of misleading in the first place. <laughs> if you think about it, um, most of the focus on those headlines for quite some time, whether in America or overseas, has been on the manufacturing PMIs. Uh, in fact, uh, whether it's in those European countries where we've seen particular weakness or in the land of the free and the home of the brave, uh, services are three times bigger and people don't focus on the services PMI so much. You've got to be more of a serious student to pay attention to that. It's the headline issues that grab all the yak. And services PMIs are fine. Uh, the bigger pulls the smaller, the smaller doesn't pull the bigger, and yet the focus is typically on the smaller and the dog that's biting the man rather than the man that's mastering the dog. So in, in my mind, that is that, but you can find so much more of that because surveys have to presume from the beginning that they can determine representativeness, and there's no actual evidence that the people that put surveys together have ever been able to do that. It's, it's, it's the reason, for example, that surveys aren't used successfully by consumer products companies to determine products to make. They used to do that. Nowadays, they really don't. So these recession concerns based on the manufacturing PMIs, I mean, I get the sense a lot of people look at the manufacturing PMI just because it has a longer history of data, right? Um, it doesn't sound like they that alone is really uh, causing you much concern, so to speak, about a, a recessionary signal. So I got a line that I like, which is ABC, uh, meaning anybody can do it and anybody can. And whenever there's something that anybody can, markets have pre-priced it. Right. The, the fact of the matter is if you're relying on what anybody can, there, there's some companies, I don't know, Bloomberg or something, I don't know. And, and, and they got like terminals and, and, and people using to see all we this maybe stuff. Know of them. All this stuff. And when you look at all that stuff that anybody can do, markets pre-price that really. Now, mind you, markets wiggle around in the short term and volatility is normal. But it's easy to get the signal from that volatility confused with what underlying trends are. And people tend, as I'm prone to want to say, uh, like the snake charmer and the snake to be focused on the snake wiggling around when really what you want to be doing is focusing on the crowd that's watching the snake. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to something you said earlier. You said it's typically the bigger that pulls the small, not the small that pulls the larger. And sure. yes, manufacturing makes up about 10% of the economy, but there's been a lot of concerns lately that that could seep over into the services sector and we could potentially see a demise, which we have not seen yet. Would you say that those concerns then are almost unfounded? Yes. Easy enough. <laughs> they are unfounded. So from here, I mean, bringing it back to everything going on with U.S.-China trade then, that really becomes the issue, that the weakness you're seeing in the manufacturing sector will seep over. Are you not concerned about second-order effects then as it relates to tariffs, whether that be CapEx, business spending, uh, investments, or confidence? I kind of think of that a little differently. First off, if you actually aggregate all announced tariffs from the beginning of 2018 to present, and you apply the maximum tariff rate that anyone has talked about, the 25% kind of number, 
and you assume that there's no substitution, uh, there's no uh, reshipping, there's no ability to get around the tariffs, and everybody's got to pay it. Uh, the totality of that tax comes to four-tenths of one percent of global GDP, which is enough to slow down growth in the economy, but not enough to turn a normal expansion or the expansion that we have globally into recession. And so this is a negative that, again, anybody can see, but the fear of it's huge and the reality of it actually is not so much. Fear of a false factor is always bullish. Big fear of a little negative is also bullish. And, you know, but, and, and of course, the reverse of both of those is also true. But in, in, in this instance, no, I don't worry about that. It does impact manufacturing, but it doesn't ripple beyond that much. You, you, one of the features of, of, of the consumer uh, that's always uh, misread is that the consumer is just rigidly opposed to doing things like diet. You know, if you think about it, everybody knows how to lose weight and almost nobody can do it. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's legendary. It's true. People know it's true. And, and, and the consumer keeps spending and con personal consumption as a percentage of GDP stays within a rigid 4% bandwidth no matter what happens to GDP. And the consumer, which is predominantly on the other side of the balance sheet, the services side, it just really does not want to cut what they buy. And, 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 there, and there really is substitution and there really is reshipping and the tariffs will never be that big. But what's really big is the concern about uncertainty. I mean, right. the, the, the reality that impacts all of us in our daily lives is, well, if they change this rule, what do I do about that? And that does impact CapEx and that does impact corporations in their planning and their thinking. And that's what you could see in Brexit, which is, oh, my gosh, what do I do about the changes that might occur in, Brit in Britain? And do I do this? Do I do that? What do I do? What don't I do? Oh, my gosh. The fact is that uncertainty does slow things down. You mentioned Brexit. I know that the way that you assess the situation and you think about the outcome is that this is really an uncertainty hanging over the market. And no matter what happens, we could potentially see a relief rally once we know what's going to happen. Now, I know for a lot of people, they think about it very simplistically and they just think no deal Brexit equals bad for markets. So how can it be that no matter the outcome, this could be just an overhang that is lifted and then you see markets go on from here and get over it? Well, I just give you an analogy. And of course, as Milton Friedman always said, all analogies are flawed. But do you remember when everybody thought that the market would go down if uh, Donald J. Trump was elected president? And it did not. <laughs> and and uh, literally within 24 hours. Uh, the fact is that fear is pre-priced. Okay. And markets pre-price really, really, really well. And not perfectly. Market the Life isn't perfect. But markets pre-priced pretty well. Uh, there's... We've done some surveys uh, <laughs> that show that the only people that aren't pretty aware of what's going on with Brexit are in the upper Amazon basin, rapidly fleeing humanity. And uh, otherwise, people have been focused on the no deal Brexit issue for a long time. You know, if you think of big companies that do lots of global trade, they've had plenty of time to put on belts and suspenders. They may look funny with the belt and suspenders, but they got plenty of time to put them on. <laughs> I haven't seen suspenders in a while. I go off to, uh, we'll have to bring them back. We, in the, in the you, you know, the, the pe people always wear the suspenders like it's a style statement. I never really got that because I'm not a stylish guy. You know, I, I got a lot of class and all of it's low. And, 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 and you know, I got a lot of 
taste and all of it's bad. And so I, I never really got how you wear those suspenders and look good. Have you have you ever worn them, Mike? I have not. My dad uh, wore them towards the end of his sure. life, but oh. I, that's because he had a giant uh, Irish beer belly, and mm. he, I think he just had a hard time keeping his pants <laughs> up. It wasn't wasn't a style. I could see that. I could see that thing. So I, I wore them once in a rental tuxedo. Oh yeah, and it was a little bit annoying because they weren't that easy to put on. Mm-hmm. I, I guess if you're used <laughs> to it, maybe it's okay, like a lot of other things. But you know, I'm from, uh, you know, I live in rural Southwest Washington, and you know, I'm still trying to learn how to wear shoes. And, <laughs> and, and, and I mean, I can do it, but it's it's rugged, and and so you know, that's the suspenders thing. That's pretty tricky. It's confusing to me. We'll have to save this for the fashion podcast oh, yeah. that we're doing separately. Chris, let's let's bring you into this. Uh, you know, as Ken said, markets are very good at pricing new information very quickly. Yeah. Boy, did they do that this week <laughs> right. with this rotation out of uh, growth and momentum yeah. stocks, sort of the, the high-flying, you know, sexy stocks that have led right. the market back into – Boring old value that had they're, sort of been left left to dead. What what's your perspective on what happened this week? Well, first of all, they're not they're high flying, but they're not sexy. We should make that that clear that one of the things going on is that the momentum getting killed right now are things like REITs and um, utilities, and that's sort of one of the funny Fair ripples point, yeah. of the market. It's that these defensives that hedge funds loved and they got bid up because of their their ties to to the the bond market rally just got crushed. And I mean, as far as your question goes. This is a, an instance, I mean, these are historical moves. Sarah did a story this week showing that um, the, the moves in things like, in, in, in the factors is what they're called, the uh, the themes that you're mentioning are the, the, the fastest in a, in a decade or two decades. So one thing you have to say, the market did price this stuff very quickly. I would argue that generally the market prices stuff in before it happens most of the time. And this is an instance of, I think, large population of investors being taken by surprise uh, by the fact that bond yields could go up again. That's really what happened. They they saw that. And if you can really trace pretty much every move that's happened in some way to its relationship to the signal from the bond market. And that in some ways goes back to that strong service uh, ISM that we saw last week, I imagine, to some degree. Uh, you know, this rethinking of the, glo- of the recession risk going forward. So, so let me take that a different direction. You just go back year after year after year and you look at surveys of people's views on bonds. Every year, people have expected long rates to go up. Mm, Every year, people have expected long rates to go up and they've always been wrong. And this time, for the first time I've seen in a long time, people started expecting long rates to go down Mm -hmm. after they'd gone down. Mm -hmm. And and they're chasing that uh, bond bull market right as you get the long rate backing up. And and that reality, I mean, I, I am unused to seeing a consensus for falling long rates. Yeah, especially when they're at one and a half, right. one and a half percent of all the times. Yeah. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So I'm, I'm not used to seeing that consensus. And then, and then of course, what, what does the consensus do? It smacks you in the face. Yeah. So, you know, they got smacked. So- the, 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 the other parallel to what you said, however, that I don't think people think about, but is perfectly obvious uh, through a Bloomberg terminal, is that in that same period, you can see this process that's the non-U.S. stock market leading the U.S. stock market. Mm. That in parallel to that shift that you discussed of value, you've also got this shift to where the, not everyone, but most of the continental European markets, uh, as well as the emerging markets, 
have been leading the U.S. market upwards. Well, I know one of the, the valuation uh, metrics that you sort of uh, are considered a, a pioneer in is price to sales, right? Um, and, you know, you look at the S&P right now. I mean, you look at the beginning of 2018. It's interesting how we had that sort of melt up higher January of last year. And it almost turned around right on the dime where uh, – the price to sales exceeded that of even the the dot com error at about I think it was like two point four or something like that. We're still at about two point two two point three uh, price to sales. Um, I'm curious how you look at that metric now because I know you've sort of had a rethink on it on on the on the sort of importance of price to sales. Um, is it looking frothy right now uh, in the U.S. at, at this sort of uh, ratio? So when I was first doing price sales ratios in the 1970s. Uh, Just a, a little short time ago. <laughs> sometimes it feels that way, actually, and sometimes it feels like forever. But it was a very different world. So, for example, I remember paying Goldman Sachs $25,000 to run a computer screen of price sales ratios on the New York Stock Exchange for me. <laughs> I just want you to get that. Wow. Because in those days, data was scarce. Today, data is plentiful. And where data is plentiful, the only way you actually can take advantage of it in the marketplace is if you've got an ability to perceive something that no one else perceives, which is very rare. It's tricky. It's hard to do. So you have to get some sort of causal relationship that isn't obvious to people. And when you say it to people, they laugh at you uh, and won't even consider it. Uh, That's, again, not easy to do. So – I don't think price sales helps you with timing these days. What it does is that when value does better than growth, price sales tends to be a more extreme measure of value. Also, when value does worse than growth, it tends to be a more extreme measure of value. But the the January bounce back, I think, was based off of other things. And, uh, you know, you could look at price sales and see it that way, but you could look at the S&P and you could see the dividend yield being above the 10-year bond rate and, you know, see it a different way. All, all that stuff that anybody can see. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Chris, I want to come to you. I mean, we mentioned the valuation case. As we stand here, yes, your time frame of what you look at for stocks very much depends on the returns you get. Year to date, really strong returns. One year, not so much. I mean, where we stand now, what would you say 
are the bull cases and the bear case for stocks at the current moment? Yeah, I mean, the bull case is is probably something like a revival of earnings next year. That's not impossible. There's some charts that can make the case that, it, that earnings growth over the last 10 years is a little is a little below par. And as much as people love to throw mud at next year's earnings estimates, that's definitely the big bear case too, throwing mud at them. It's not it's not impossible you get you get back to the 10% growth that generally uh, bespeaks a healthy stock market. It, it obviously helps that the Fed appears to now be uh, more or less the stock market's plaything or the, the stock and bond market's plaything, which increasingly is the same thing. So that's a fairly a, a fairly sturdy bull case. Once we buy, stocks usually go up too. Um, bear case, uh, I think you have to say, I mean, it's no surprise. There are a lot of people walking around saying that uh, Trump is going to uh, trade war us into a recession. Um, there's just the fact of the length of the recovery, I, I hate to say, just uh, str- has to start striking you as a little bit improbable around now. You have uh, a presidential election coming up when God knows what will go out over Twitter. There's, there's Take your pick. <laughs> Ken, so Fisher Investments is primarily a fee-based uh, advisory firm, correct? I, I think primarily is a unnecessary word. Need to primarily, the <laughs> right, right, right. But I'm just curious, after a week like this, after uh, a year like this, I feel like the phones must be ringing off the hook uh, at your firm. Is that true? And if you were the one answering uh, the call, I'm just curious what, what you would be telling your clients these days. When you're in... The advice business, the best advice is the pre-advice so that they don't get too agitated. That's the best advice. The best advice is education and preparation. And so this year, people are pretty calm. This is not a bad year. Mike, why the hell would the phone be ringing off the hook this week? I mean, we're so... We've done nothing. Yeah, we're so deep in the market and realizing that there is this big quanti storm going on. And right now, markets aren't that volatile. I'm here right now. The last three days have been sarcastically calm at the, at the surface. Well, if you're, uh, if you're loaded up on uh, momentum and and growth stocks, I'd be calling Ken. I'd be calling Ken's cell phone. I don't first, just my bias, uh, which I've had my whole life is that I've always known that I'm in a realm where if you could be right 70% of the time in the long term, you'd become a living legend. Absolutely. Yeah. So that means you better be used to being wrong th- at least 30% of the time mm-hmm. because you're going to be. And you better plan your life so you can do that and be comfortable. It's kind of like being a boxer at one level. If, you, if you're if you a boxer and you plan to never get hit, you're in the wrong game because <laughs> you got to be able to take a punch. And so you, you, you never want to have portfolios extreme enough that when a little wiggle happens, people pull their hair out. Mm-hmm. Everything that I ever do, I'm trying to do so that I've got a counter bet in a classic Markowitz sense, you know, in terms of mean variance optimization, you're supposed to build the portfolio that way in the first place. Mm-hmm. That's what you're supposed to do. One more thing before we get to the crazy, craziest thing in the week. And you could argue that uh, maybe President Trump calling uh, the Fed a bunch of boneheads. No, is, that's is an the, understatement. Is the <laughs> he is kind and gentle Whoa. and understated. Mm. I, if you were to ask me about the Fed, I just get, I mean, that's just, that's ridiculous. They're terrible. So let's say you're the receptionist at the Fed. Uh, I, I, would do a, I would do a John Taylor on him. Yeah. If it were up to me, I'd pull a John Taylor on him. And explain that to our listeners. 
So, you know, John Taylor's always had the view that the Fed ought to be just simply turned into a black box that creates a quantity of money at a relatively steady rate. Uh, And in effect, that's an extension of what Milton Friedman taught when I was a kid. It's different, but it's sort of parallel. Uh, You know, William McChesney Martin was the longest running uh, head of the Fed in the history of the Fed. And, you know, he made all kinds of blunders. And afterwards, you know, he was asked why. And, and, you know, he, he always had great lines. And one of his lines was, well, when you come head of the Fed, you take a little pill and it makes you forget everything you ever knew. And it lasts just <laughs> as long as you're head of the Fed. And, and then he was succeeded by Arthur Burns, who was the best prepared person up to that point in time in history to be head of the Fed. And he was a bloody disaster. And afterwards, uh, you know, in those days, they used to be Carter's little liver pills that were, you know, widely advertised, didn't do anything. They had to finally, uh, the government forced them to change their name to Carter's Pills. And, and, and they asked Burns, why'd you make all these stupid mistakes? He said, you never make. And he said, well, I took Martin's pill. And, <laughs> and the, the fact is, M- Milton Friedman said when I was a kid that the Fed would always get fixated on wiggling and jiggling interest rates. And they wouldn't focus on what they should be doing, which is growing the quantity, broad quantity of money at a relatively steady state consistent with the growth rate of the economy and uh, a desired inflation rate. Instead, they'd get sidetracked, focused uh, on the snake that's wiggling around. And that they do, and they can't quite get themselves. They were up to me, because again, nobody at the Fed's ever actually engaged in banking. Isn't that ironic? <laughs> nobody at the, at, at the Euro banks actually ever engaged in banking. Isn't that weird? Yeah. And they, they're all regulators and politicians and economists, and they've actually never gotten their hands dirty. If they were, in my opinion, smarter, which I don't expect them to ever be. I mean, they're very smart. If, if they would purge themselves of all those idiotic bonds they never should have bought in the first place, which would push long rates up a little, steepen the yield curve, incentivize banks to lend, stop paying interest on unlent reserves. And what quantitative easing was always about, which was dishonest, was always about forcing banks to build their balance sheets. Because what really drives the central bankers of the, of the modern world is their fear of too big to fail. But I don't think Trump calling the Fed bonehead is anything other than a mild understatement. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is certain that we might see some wiggling and jiggling of uh, interest rates come next week. So. I do believe they wiggle and jiggle and tiggle insider. <laughs> um, but the fact of the matter, you, you know that there once was a spider? I do. Yeah, that, I think that's kind of what the Fed is. They got that wiggle and jiggle and tickle insider thing. But uh, I don't see that as very crazy, that Trump thing. I mean, if in the scale of Trumpisms, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty mild. <laughs> <laughs> Although he's calling them boneheaded for opposite reasons that you are. He wants more quantitative easing. He wants lower negative rates, uh, something that I would assume would put the banking industry at great risk. So far up to this point in time, President Trump has allowed me to have whatever opinion I want to have. And I hope he allows you to, too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, if boneheads is in a crazy enough, Mike, why don't you give us something even crazier? All right. The craziest thing I saw this week, a Bloomberg story by Austin Weinstein. Um, So there this goes all the way back to 1913. There was an attorney from Canada named David Faskin. He paid a dollar fifty an acre for something like one hundred and sixty five acres. Where? Outside of Midland, Texas. Permian. Permian Basin. It's now worth about seven billion dollars. His heirs have inherited it all. Um, they're not selling and they're not really drilling on it. Talk about buy and hold, Ken. That's uh, <laughs> taking it to the extreme. So can I offer you a crazy of the week? Yeah, yeah well, of go course. For it. That's why you're here. So the crazy of the week that if, if I knew that was why I was here, I would have thought of something crazy. <laughs> um, 
So we think about this. Week after week after week, we got these protests in Hong Kong. And we got this concern that the Chinese are coming, the Chinese are coming, the Chinese are coming, oh my God. And so what does Hong Kong do? Bids to buy the London Stock Exchange. Yeah. <laughs> if, if that isn't crazy. <laughs> a pretty, a nice stable pretty big, sure. big bid, too. We want, yeah. chi- we want China to own the London Stock Exchange. <laughs> I'd say that's a pretty good one. Very good one, yeah. as a matter of fact. Yeah, that's pretty good. Chris, how about you? What do you got? Well, just uh, the, I, the, I can't not say the quant, uh, the quant quake going on. Particularly, we've had a lot of arguments on, on the desk about what's really going on. And there is an aspect that if you, if you invent enough names for things, momentum, quality, growth, whatever, <laughs> eventually you'll be able to apply them to whatever set of facts you're faced with. And I think a little bit of that's going on. But I'm also sort of fascinated by something Sarah raised this week, where in trying to parry me from this argument, um, brought up the sort of weird co-movement of stocks that uh, almost are acting like they know their momentum stocks and know their value stocks. One thing I would say, not individual names, but the fact that oil uh, shares broadly have risen for 10 of the last 11 days during a period of pretty deep, you know, typical volatility in the price of oil. When I, when I think about that, I start to wonder if there isn't something to this kind of top-down overlay thing going on with the quants and maybe uh, maybe uh, oil stocks do know that they're, they're value, value stocks, stocks at some yeah. level. Yeah. I wonder, the TLT, the Treasury ETF, is that a momentum stock? At this <laughs> we'll have to, we'll have to, interview, we'll have to interview it. <laughs> It was recently the most overbought in its history, if you look at relative strength indexes. But uh, my craziest thing kind of goes off of what Chris was just saying, just because it's pretty crazy. If you look at the best performing stocks that you've seen this year in the Russell 1000 or in the S&P, I mean, you think of names like Chipotle or is this one called Avalara, um, and they provide sales tax management all up a crazy amount, like 100% or more this year, and for no reason whatsoever. I mean, earlier this week, you what just saw you them mean? getting pounded. <laughs> no, no, wait a second. Chipotle hasn't had anybody die from its food once <laughs> this year. Right. Well, no, that no. shocked people. I'm not, I'm not that saying, shocked people. I'm not saying on the way up, sir. Not, <laughs> not surprising not for, on the way up. Uh, I mean, not for lack of trying. I've been eating a lot of it myself. <laughs> myself, too. Um, uh, but no, on the way down, there was nothing that happened. Yeah. I mean, no one died eating Chipotle and the stock got hammered. <laughs> yeah, it's the same, it's the same to Anyone staring at the summer has to be a little bit Someone went in there. It was scary. Yeah? Yeah? (laughs) What were you saying, Chris? No, I just feel like anyone who's been glued to their their terminals from the stock side has been bowled over by some of the, just the sort of ghostly correlations that have suddenly sprung up. Well, let's hope they continue to, to remain glued to their terminals and mm-hmm. hopefully glued to this podcast. But I think that's uh, that's all the time we have for this week. Chris Nagy, Ken Fisher, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Thanks for you. having me. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, and app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at, at Sarah Ponsek. Mike is at Reganonymous. Our guest, Ken Fisher, is at Kenneth L. Fisher. And Chris Nagy is at Chris Nagy One. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.